0: If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll be starting when we do read in the second part of chapter, or excuse me, of verse 2 of that chapter, uh, all the way down through verse 10. I think it's fair to say that we live in an age that's fairly discontented. We are sold... Most often, on the idea of progress, of, on achievement, of getting to the next best thing. Every commercial, it seems like, is set up in this manner to tell you why you ought to be discontent and then to provide you the way to alleviate that discontentment. Your whites aren't white enough, so you can buy our detergent and you can make them white enough. Your car isn't fast enough, so you can buy this car and it is fast enough. This piece of technology isn't perfect, so you should go get a new one. This style is out of date, so you should go get a new one. This works for you, but it could work a little bit better with all these bells and whistles, so you should go get a new one. There is this continual pressing upon us to be discontent with what we have so that we will go and get more. Now, while Americans generally, I think, are pressed upon this idea of being discontent, Christians have long sort of stood against this and not like trying to stand against being discontent in this world, but they have just shown a great contentment even with a lot that they are being have been given. Whether or not that is the martyrs throughout the Christian church or even the missionaries who labor sometimes for decades without seeing any sort of fruitful thing come from that. But they labor for decades simply because they are content to do work for God even if God does not show them the fruit of their labors. Many of them, although they had ups and downs, committed themselves simply and practically to the work because they were content to do what God had called them to do. Contentment though comes at a great Christ it is difficult to be content it is difficult to be happy where you are especially when the world around you screams for you to be discontent and while this is tough personally it's tough personally for you it's tough personally for me it is mandatory for us corporately it's mandatory for the church to be content in Jesus Christ we must be content with the good that Christ has brought us We must be content with what he has accomplished for us. We must be content with what he provides for us and what he promises to us. So, lest we find ourselves filled with doubt and distorting the message of the gospel, let us work on how we can be content in Christ. So, let us go to the book of 1 Timothy and read from verse 2 through verse 10 with me, if you would. Timothy, teach and urge these things. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of our God. Friends, we need to work on being content. And the first thing I think we need to be content with is we need to be content with Christ's proclamation. We need to be content with Christ's proclamation. In verses 3 through 5, we see this. Even before then, we see that Paul is telling Timothy that he needs to teach and urge these things. Now, for us in the ESV, they've got that separated out into a new paragraph, but there's clearly somebody else somewhere along the line who thought it belonged up with verse 2, and so it's actually in verse 2. It is, it is really a transition. He's looking back on the things that he has said, and he said, Timothy, these are good things. You need to teach these things. In essence, what he is saying is, teach the things that I've talked about, but what's coming up... I need you to be warned about. You are not to teach what follows. Don't do what I'm about to illustrate. For there are many who will come and they will teach a different doctrine. Words that don't agree with healthy teaching. You'll notice that he uses this idea later. He has an unhealthy craving. He has an unhealthy craving because it's not the healthy teaching of Jesus Christ. They're going to teach a different doctrine. Paul says the people who would dare do this are puffed up. Their heads are in the clouds. They lack knowledge. They don't know what they're speaking of, and they don't know how they're supposed to speak. It's interesting. You come to this passage, and it's clear that some people, even in Paul's day, thought that they knew better than the apostles and the prophets. They thought that they could do better. They thought that they could progress farther. They thought that they had more knowledge and more ability to understand the very works of Christ than his apostles, the ones that he specifically sent out into the world to to, treat, to uh, teach and preach his word. And what he meant by this is not people who sat down and tried to study these more diligently. Okay? He's not talking about people who sit down and, and honestly work through scriptures to understand theology better and more deeply. What he means are people who move beyond it, who look at the teaching, the proclamation of Jesus Christ and say, we can do better than that. Wouldn't you know it? I'm the man to lead you there. So he argues, this preacher with others, about where they've gone wrong. He argues not only with people who have come before. He doesn't just argue with tradition, but he argues even with the apostles and even with Christ himself. So notice in verse 3, it's with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a pretty vague expression. And it means both, I think, the words about Jesus Christ, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the words that Jesus Christ himself has said it implies that they are moving beyond the simple proclamation that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. Isn't this the very nature of what Paul said the gospel is? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. No, they say, we can do better than that. that that's old hat. We, we can move on. We can press beyond these things. They, they are trying to not contain and not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel himself. But they also disagree with what he proclaimed. It's the very words that he said. As we go through these verses, you'll find how many of them are linked back to just the Sermon on the Mount. They don't like what Jesus has to say to them. They think that they can do better than them. What immense Arrogance. Christ is the very nature of God. And so he has come to reveal God to us. Not just to reveal God to us as though somebody like me stands up and tells you about the nature of God. He reveals God to us by being very God in our midst. He tells us everything that we need to know for life and for love and for happiness and how to be related to God. And he doesn't just tell us. He shows us and visibly obtains that which we could never obtain by giving us salvation. And in his proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom of God, people sit there and they think that they can do better than that. They can do better than his ethical treatment of sex. They can do better than his ethical treatment of of women or of men or of whatever solution you want to find or whatever controversy you want to find that people think we can move beyond what Scripture has provided for us. They insist that he has changed his mind. They often do this under the banner of of Jesus still speaks. In many very liberal churches, they talk about him still speaking, that he still speaks to us that Jesus somehow, some way, has progressed, by miraculous means, the exact same direction that we're all progressing. Jesus rarely heads toward Islam, but he always heads towards liberality. It's amazing how he always speaks to Western people exactly in Western ways. And lo, we have preachers who will agree with that. And they will hear his voice speaking to them through science and through technology and through psychology. And they will latch on to it and they will promote that. Now, arrogance is a difficult thing. And I'm telling you that they are arrogant. And they would look at me and they would say, you are just, if not more, arrogant. Because you think that you can stand up and you can give people the truth. Well, that's true. And they would say, rather, that they are the truly humble ones. Because they can admit that they need to learn from the times. But their arrogance is not just in their claim that they can learn, but in what they deny. What they deny either because they refuse to talk about it or what they deny because they actually flat out deny it. So many of them say that Jesus still speaks today, but he whispers in their ear precisely what they want to hear. God does indeed speak through you. and God can indeed speak through science. And he can indeed speak in these ways. There is much to learn about the world, There is much to learn about us biologically. There is much to learn about how we relate to one another through science and through things like that. But it is always meant to be kept captive to the word of Christ. It is always meant to be. We're not saying that we can't learn. We're saying that when we learn, we filter everything through the word of God. We learn from psychology, we learn from physics, we learn from politics, and we learn from history but we take those thoughts captive to Christ and we humbly insist, humbly insist that our knowledge is always secondary to the knowledge of God revealed to us in Jesus Christ, given to us through his apostles and prophets in the Bible. And Paul here then identifies the real problem. Such people have an unhealthy craving for controversy. That's what they want. They want controversy. It's not always controversy with the world. Actually, the way Paul talks about it, it's more often controversy within the church. They like to show that they are sticking out, that they are different from everybody else. They're the trailblazers. They're the rebels. They're the ones who are fighting man and sticking up for the little guy. They are the lone voice of reason in the wilderness of church tradition and history. And if there were Catholics in here, as of right now, they would clear their throat loudly and say, Luther, because that's exactly what Luther did. Luther seemed to be, at the time, the lone voice crying out against church tradition, and he seemed to be the lone voice crying out against everything else. And they would look at me, and they would say, exactly what you are decrying is exactly what led to the Reformation. There is one staggering difference, though. While Luther did draw a line in the sand, while he did stand up against the man, almost literally, and while he did say, here I stand, and I will do no other, I can do no other, He did so while pointing at his writings and saying, please, show me from Scripture where I'm wrong. And you know what almost no one did until well after the fact? Even attempt to show Martin where he went wrong. They wouldn't even listen to it. It was church authority or nothing. Had they done that, you know what would likely be the case? We'd all be Catholic. If they would have done that. But they refused to. So Luther is like that, but he stands on the word of God. He says, show me where I'm wrong on the word of God. He wasn't a trailblazer trying to kick off Jesus' proclamation, trying to move beyond it. He was a trailblazer in that he was trying to go back to it. Such should be us. We don't have a craving for controversy. We have a craving for the word of God, for the sound teaching of Jesus Christ. So the question for us is, are we truly content with the proclamation of Christ? Are we truly content with his proclamation? And this is directed at teachers, but friends, this is for all of us. You listen to teachers. You listen to me, some of you. So how can we be sure that we are content with it? First and most obviously is to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Please, I beg of you, don't take my word for it. Actually, if you take my word for it, you won't take my word for it, which puts us in a bit of a paradox, but take my word for it. You need to check it against the scriptures, okay? Yes, you need to hear what I say, lend some credence to it, but then go to Scripture and see if it's true. I, I am of no doubt that you have called me as your pastor and you have entrusted me with the pastorship because there is some sense of trust there, and I'm glad for that, but you cannot always rely on that. Make sure that when I speak, you are checking it against the Scripture and see if it's wrong, and by all means, if you think that it's wrong, come and talk to me so that we can sharpen our iron together, friend. Second, Listen to the type of preaching. There are some preaching and there are some teachers who will accord to the sound doctrine, but they still have an unhealthy craving for controversy. So it's not just what they say, and it's not just checking it against the word, but it is also listening to the type of preaching that will be important. Is the preacher always setting up an us versus the world approach to everything? What is it that he takes the time to talk about? Does a preacher need to weigh in on every little controversy that's happening in the world? Does he have his grand opinion on every small facet of Christendom? Does he feel the need to reshape his congregation around these types of controversies? Does he feel the need to mention every sort of clickbaity idea that runs around the Christian world? If so, he likely has left the sound teaching and the sound doctrine of Jesus Christ without denying them. He has just moved on from them and all he can talk about is women in ministry. Guess what? That is not what Paul has called you to do, friend. I'm afraid this type of stuff is readily present in sectors of Christianity, and especially those who hold tightly to the Word of God. Too many Christian preachers of the Word of God hold tightly to making sure that they are convinced and they convince everybody around them of their opinion on every single controversy that comes down the pipe. Preach Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that you don't have to have an opinion on those things. And it doesn't mean you don't have to stand up for what the word says. But it does mean that the vast majority of your time is taken with preaching sound doctrine of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, see the fruit of their teaching. Jesus says this in Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. They seem like their sheep. They might even smell like sheep. They certainly look like sheep. But inside, all they're waiting is for a moment when you turn your back that they can pounce on you and get a little veal. They're looking to eat you. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, Jesus doesn't help by really defining well in that particular passage, although in a larger scope of the Sermon on the Mount, I think he probably does. But in that particular passage, what the bad fruits are. But Paul helpfully does tell us precisely what these bad fruits are. These bad fruits are quarrels, they're envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction amongst Christians. And I would draw your attention to one thing when Paul speaks like that. He's not saying that you are going to run aground and you're going to have friction and you're going to have controversies and you're going to quarrel with the outside world. He means they're drawing controversies and dissensions and envy and strife within the Christian community. That's who they're causing friction with. If a teacher's words continually provoke an us versus the world mentality, if they stand either against or uh, most other living Christians or against what Chesterton might call the democracy of the dead, if they have to stand against church tradition all the time or they have to stand against Christians out in the world all the time and they have to get their adherents to think along the same lines, they are getting dangerously close to this type of illicit desire that only wants controversies to be upheld and talked about and promoted within the church. But be warned, it's not just about those who teach. Friend, there is a warning here for those of you who listen to such things. It causes constant friction amongst people who listen to it. People who have depraved minds, who like that friction. It causes friction among them, so you would think, well, because it causes friction among them, they must not adhere to it. But it's clear that it causes friction amongst those who actually listen to it. They want the friction. They want to rub one another the wrong way. They want heat and not light. They want strife. This is why Paul says they are deprived in their minds. Who wants that? These people do. These people are the ones who leave anonymous, ugly notes on the bottom of every single web page that they can possibly come to. Sometimes they'll probably just write them on their screen so that they're permanently there and they can see them in their pride. Don't be like them. Don't long for controversy within the church, but pray for unity and pray for God's glory to be seen and known and proclaimed because you are not deprived of the truth. The truth is here. The truth is proclaimed. The truth is known. Be content with the proclamation of Christ. Secondly, be content with Christ's provision. If you would, skip down to verses 9 through 10 with me. Paul there writes, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Please read your Bibles well. It is not that money is the root of all kinds of evil. Okay? Okay. It is not that, that, it's just the rich people who have this problem. Now, even if it were, just about everybody in this room would be lopped with Paul in with the rich. So you can't escape there. But even so, the way Paul has it written two times, those who desire to be rich and for the love of money, both of those things indicate it doesn't matter if you have money or not. You desire it, it lumps you into the same group. Whether you are rich or poor, whether you live in the slums of Calcutta or you live in a mansion in Washington State, it doesn't matter. All of you are combined in this. Anyone who loves money, anyone who desires riches falls into temptation. Don't think that this is for somebody else. This warning is for us. It's for all of us. Money is a necessary tool. God has created it. And by the way, God has created it in such a way that it can show honor and it can show love to people. I know we talk about We talk about money not being necessary for love, like we like to quote the Beatles. Everyone loves to quote the Beatles on love. They don't really know what love's about. But nevertheless, we like to quote the Beatles on love. And when they do that, they ignore what I think Paul has been saying for the past two sermons that we've had, both Doug's and mine previously. That money is a way to show honor to people. God has shown it that way. Money is frankly a way to show love to people and taking care of them monetarily, you are showing them that you love them and you care for them. God has created money for good things and it can be used for good things, but like every other good thing, the desire of it above other things that are better and especially above God himself is an incredibly dangerous thing. Such a desire, Paul says, makes you fall into temptation. If gold is what you serve, you will break God's laws. You will ignore God's commands in order to serve gold. As Jesus said in Matthew six twenty four, again in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can try. Jesus doesn't say you can't try. You can try it. You can say, listen, I- I'm going to... Desire money. I want to get all the money I can. I want to be filthy rich so that I can spend it on God's kingdom. Or you can say in striving after money that you will eventually do God's bidding with it. Once I've made enough and I'm comfortable, then I'm going to turn it over and then I'm going to do what God has asked me to do with it. But Jesus thinks that you are nothing less than a fool. Friend, are you concerned more with making money or are you concerned with how to use what you make for the glory of God? Do you constantly wish you had more or are you constantly wishing you could simply use what you have more efficiently? Not only will you fall into temptation, he says, a temptation to go against the will of God and go against the clear and obvious teachings of the church when it comes to money. If you love money, you will not, you will not follow another path that will take you away from money. But it's a snare. Paul is urging Timothy, friend, this is not a one-time deal. This isn't a one-time problem that you're going to come up against. When they were doing the first nuclear bomb test, scientists weren't quite sure, they weren't quite sure, if in setting off this nuclear reaction, which is a chain reaction, they weren't quite sure if they weren't going to light the entire atmosphere on fire. They really didn't know. And the fools went and they set it off anyway, like scientists. We won't know until we try, they said. And lo and behold, just the bomb blew up. And that was big enough, but just the bomb blew up. But many people play around with the desire for riches the exact same way those scientists played around with the atomic bomb. They think that they can have it contained in one simple explosion, no matter how big that explosion is, but unlike the atomic bomb, it ensnares them and it sets the entire world on fire. They grab you and they won't let you go. The picture is not that you can be tempted by it once, but once you fall into the desire, this particular desire has teeth and it won't just let you go free. And like a wild animal caught in it, you have to gnaw and pierce yourself in order to get out. It tempts, it ensnares, and then Paul says it plunges them. It leads them into many senseless and harmful desires, and those desires plunge them into ruin and destruction, into blackness and devastation, into a pit with no hope and no help. It snaps you in its jaws and it pulls you into the water like an alligator or a crocodile killing a deer. Once it has its jaws clamped on that deer's leg, it can't kill it by breaking its leg, but it can't let go because it'll get away. So it slowly but surely drags it into the water, plunges it under the water, and drowns the thing. That is exactly what these desires will do to you. You think that you can play around with it, You think that you can enjoy it a little bit and then you can pull yourself out of it. And Paul's saying, friend, it's not a one-time temptation. It is a temptation that will snare you. It is a temptation that will get a hold of you. It will plunge you while you are in this world into many senseless and harmful desires that will lead to your ruin and your devastation. It will bite. And when it does, you have no out. Discontent with what Christ has provided for you in this world. It may be much, It may be little, but don't be discontent with what he has provided. Jesus has told us, even in the Sermon on the Mount, do not be anxious for the things of the world. Don't be anxious for what you're going to wear or what you're going to eat. Do you realize how hard that teaching is? I mean, for us, we have to say, okay, don't be anxious because if I need a new t-shirt, Walmart's right there. So I don't really have to be anxious about it. I've got money in my bank account. I can go get it. But for people who lived in an agrarian culture, where famine would destroy them, worrying about what they eat and what they wear is a real worry. Jesus looks at them and says, don't worry about any of that. The sparrows are fed. The flowers are clothed, much more beautifully, by the way, than any of you. God will take care of you, long for the kingdom, first and foremost. You will not care for the provision that Christ has given you, those good things that he has given you. When you think that it's not enough, you'll become ungrateful, You'll become unhappy with what you have. You'll be provoked to anger and jealousy over what others have and you don't. You will be prone to an ends justifies the means type of living where you will cheat and you will steal and you will lie. You will do what you need to do in order to make ends meet. You will excuse waste and risk because you got to spend money to get money. And frankly, it does nothing but promote idolatry Such things will not end well for you. And friend, this is hard in America. There have been no group of people, no generation of people who have been raised in a place that promotes the desire for riches and the ability to achieve those desires more than America. It's one thing to have yourself in a position where you want to be rich, but you know you have no hope of getting there. It's quite another thing to be in America where that hope is always present for you. It's present for you through education. It's present for you through hard work. It's present for you through craftiness and cunning. It's present for you through investment. It's present for you in the lotto. It's present for you in casinos. Everywhere you turn, there is opportunity for you to get rich. This is a problem for us because that is always present. You need to fight this kind of urge. And you fight it by turning to our third point, being content with Christ's promise. Be content with Christ's promise, friends. We're focusing on this section of the last because it is literally the center of everything that Paul wants to say here. It's the center of our passage. It's the center of the theme of all of this. He does want to turn around, and he does want to talk about the gain that you get from godliness. It's quite clear that he thinks that there is gain in godliness. We read several weeks ago, back in chapter four, verse eight, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. There is gain in godliness. There are good things to gain out of godliness. So Paul doesn't want to make it seem like simply being godly, being a fake godly, like the prosperity gospel is fake godly. You've got to believe. If you believe, you do the things that God asks you, he will give you gain. He will give you money. He will give you riches. He will give you health. He will give you success at whatever you turn your hands to. That is what the prosperity gospel teaches. Paul wants to say, it's not that God won't give you gain You get gain from the gospel. You get much gain. And godliness is indeed gain for you. But you need to know what kind of gain it is. If you think that you can only turn to godliness in order to gain in this life, in order to get things out of God in this life, you are using God to serve money. That is the very nature of idolatry. God does not ever, ever honor that. As Dr. Moore once said when talking about the prosperity gospel, it's not that people who adhere to it want too much from God, but they want too little. It's not that people who want God to give them everything in the world are actually asking too much. It's that they want the things of the world, these things that rot and perish, these things that are transient and and effervescent. They bubble away. They're here one day and they're gone the next. It's not that they want too much. It's that they don't ask enough of God. Christ has promised you so much more. And notice also the beautiful balance that this particular passage gives to us. When we read, there is, godliness is a means of gain in contentment. In contentment. Last week, Doug talked to you about double honor for elders. That is is a commandment that has been given to you. That is not a commandment that's been given to me. And it is not up for me to demand it of you. It's not up to me to insist it from you. If I wanted to do that, I would bring a friend from China and have him demand it of you for me. <laughs> it's not my command. That's your command. So you are commanded to honor, as long as you find that I am, those who labor and preaching and teaching, worthy of a double honor, then you are to give me a double honor. It is not my job to insist of that from you. It is my job to be content. So we are balanced. I am content and you honor. I am content and you honor. That's what Paul is doing here, at least as part of this. We need to strive to be content with what we have. This is what Paul means when he says, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. He doesn't mean that that's all I need. He needs the Spirit of God. He wants Jesus to work through him. He's not going to be content until people hear the gospel proclaimed. He's not content if, if Timothy completely drops the ball on everything he's saying. Paul's not going to say, ne c'est la vie." c'est He's not going to say that because French wasn't around then, but he's also not going to say it because that's not his attitude. He doesn't think that that's okay. What he's saying is if we have the bare essentials, we should be content with that. We shouldn't need more. That's for all of us. It's not just for me. It's for everyone. We need to be content. He says you should have great gain and contentment Notice the reason why there is great gain with contentment. There's great gain and contentment in the world because, he says in verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world and we can't take anything out of it. He says, you came into the world naked and holding nothing. You will leave the world naked and holding nothing and there's nothing you can do about it. The Egyptians stuffed junk into their coffins in order to make it with, take that stuff with them across the river. And you know what we found? 3,000 years later, all that stuff is still in their coffin and they ain't got a thing of it. You can't take it with you. That's a bumper sticker, but it's true. You can't ever take this stuff with you. And here it stays. Paul says, you need to be content with that because there will be a day when you're going to die and all your stuff is meaningless. Ecclesiastes said it this way in chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun riches were kept by their owner to his hurt and those riches were lost in a bad venture and he is the father of a son but he has nothing in his hand as he came from his mother's womb he shall go again naked as he came and he shall take nothing for all of his toil that he may, that he may carry anything away in his hand this is also a grievous evil just as he came he shall go and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind you you're just you're toiling for the wind It's a vapor. It's here one day and it's gone the next. Jesus gets at the exact same idea in a much different way in Matthew chapter 6. Again, from the Sermon on the Mountain, verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, there are plenty of things in this world that moths don't eat, right? And that rust doesn't destroy. We can make rust-proof things that moths can't eat. Jesus is not wrong. All he means is, if thieves don't come in and take it away from you while it's still good, there will come a day when that thing that you honor and that thing that you want the most will be worthless. It will fade. It will break. It will dissolve. Something will happen to it. Entropy wins all the time. First Peter puts it this way for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. He says, don't search for the things of this world. these These things that are transient, these things that are, going to go away all these things that you work and you labor and you strive for so hard they will all vanish one day but there is a promise given to you that through the blood of jesus christ through the work that he has done and making you one with god overcoming your penalty, overcoming the debt that you owe to God by taking your death on a cross. He has given you eternal life if you trust in him. And that eternal life comes with severe and major benefits. The first of which is that you are united with Christ and all of the benefits that accrue to that. So his justification is your justification. His resurrection is your resurrection. His life, your life. His inheritance, your inheritance. Let's strive after BMWs. Look at the world. And why strive after something that when you attain it might take away from the better thing that's coming to you? Why desire something that will eventually make you lose everything? What does it gain a man to gain the world and to lose his soul? Now, you might look at the passage as you ought to do. And you might say, Ah, there's not a lot of that in there. But I'm telling you, it is the basis of all Pauline ethics. Everything that Paul suffers, everything that he goes through, he filters through the promise of Christ that he will have better things to come. Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Paul can suffer in Philippians 4. He says, I'm content. Thanks for sending the parchment, guys. Thanks for sending the books but I'm content. I don't need them. I know the secret. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, after, by the way, he says continually, I thought I was going to die. He says, I had a, a, basically a death certificate written on me. My, my death was written down. It was going to happen. I thought I was going to die. He says, this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison his life was going to be taken from me he says me but a flesh wound I have an eternal weight of glory coming to me I can be content do you want to kill me I'm okay with that I've got better things coming for me to live as Christ and to die as gain all of his ethics are based how he carries himself in the world what he desires to do in the world what he is willing to put up with are are filtered through, all of that is filtered through the fact that Christ has promised him an eternal blessing kept for him in the heavenly places. Christ is true to his word. As he has laid down his life to take away our sins, so he has raised from the grave to give us every good thing. Those good things are not here. Those good things are kept, as Peter says, for you in heaven you are born naked, you will die naked. You were born with nothing, you will die with nothing. But if you know Christ, there is something waiting for you. So friend, if you have, and all you have in this life is simply you, if, if all that life is is just what you're living right now, if you are nothing but a random collection of molecules that know nothing about life after death, if God doesn't care about your sins, or he doesn't forgive your sins, or if he doesn't even exist, Then eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow you die and you go away. And there's nothing that you can do about it. Live it up. You don't even need godliness for that. But if the resurrection is real, if the promise is true, if if God is indeed keeping an inheritance for you, if you can't take anything with you, Why plunge yourself into ruin and destruction by leaving what Christ has proclaimed, by not trusting what Christ has promised? Why not trusting and and being content with what Christ has provided for you here? Why thrust all of that away if those promises are true, if those promises are good, if those promises are real? Why risk an eternal and sure reward for things that are ultimately meaningless? Trust in Christ. Not just for salvation, but for every good thing that comes from it. And may Christ keep sure in heaven your very great reward. Let's pray. Father, help us to be content. Help us to hold fast to the promises that you have given us in Christ. That we may not find our help, our aid, or any of our desires to be in the things of the world. Let our pursuit of godliness be for the end of your glory. Many of us even now desire this but are tempted by the flesh towards fame and fortune in the world. May your spirit show us the beauty of Jesus Christ, the truthfulness of his promises, and the assurance of our good reward. And let these things help us to fight against discontentment in our lives. We pray for these things for our good and for your glory. Amen.